Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, in February, I had the uh, privilege, uh, myself and my wife and then some of our uh, youth workers, of going to Muncie Civic Theater and seeing their production of Peter Pan. We had uh, one of our students, Josh Brinkman, who was uh, one of the lost boys in that play. And after watching the play, uh, my wife and I were talking uh, with, our, with our youth workers just about how uh, none of us had ever actually read the story of Peter Pan. You know, we'd seen many depictions of it, um, but we'd never actually sat down and read the story. And so as it turns out, if you have a, an iPad or an iPhone, it's actually a free download on iBooks. So I figured that out and we downloaded it. Uh, we spent some time reading it together. And it was a really, really interesting story. If you're not familiar with the story of Peter Pan, which is probably not most of us, but maybe some of us, or maybe you've grown up enough that you've just completely forgotten about Peter Pan, which is actually covered in the story, that adults don't remember him too well. Uh, Peter Pan is a uh, young boy who doesn't want to grow up. He lives in Neverland, which is a magical island where children don't grow up. Uh, it's also a very treacherous place, though, because it's filled with pirates and with Indians and wild animals that are ready to uh, devour you, ready to fight at any moment, all bloodthirsty, as the narrative says. Uh, and in the middle of all of this is Peter Pan and his followers, the Lost Boys, who just have endless adventures on this island. And at the beginning, in the first two chapters of the story of Peter Pan, uh, Peter visits the home of the Darlings, this family in London. And while their parents are out for the night, Peter uh, invites the three children, Wendy, Michael, and John, to accompany him to Neverland, to, to fly off with him to Neverland. And while Peter is luring the children away into the night with promises of mermaids and fairies and pirates and all these adventures, uh, the parents are alerted that something is not quite right. And so they decide to go home to uh, find out exactly what's going on and prevent whatever calamity might be occurring. So in the narrative, uh, James M. Barry, the author, describes it this way. He says, Mr. and Mrs. Darling ran into the middle of the street to look up at the nursery window. And yes, it was still shut, but the room was ablaze with light. And the most heart-gripping sight of all, they could see in the shadow on the curtain three figures in night attire circling around the room, but not on the floor, in the air. And not three figures, but four. In a tremble, they threw open the street door. Will they reach the nursery in time? If so, how delightful for them, and we shall all breathe a sigh of relief. But then there will be no story to tell. Now, when you reach this point in the story, you may feel slightly conflicted because there's a small part of you that, that is kind of hoping that the parents make it up to the nursery in time to stop the children from leaving because that's, that's the sensible thing. That's the right thing. Uh, but most of you really want the children to escape with Peter Pan. Uh, for the most part, you are really hoping that the darlings don't reach the nursery in time. And you also know they won't, because otherwise there wouldn't be a story to tell. Um, but the reason we do this is because we want to experience the adventures with Peter Pan. We want to accompany the children as they fight pirates and Indians and avoid the, the jaws of the wild animals. We want to take part in the bloody battle that sees Captain Hook finally uh, vanquished. And when we read stories like this, in our minds, we're ready for adventure. Right? If, you, if you sit down to read a story, you are willing uh, to sacrifice with those characters. You're willing to run away and do whatever it takes to, to follow somebody on a very noble quest. However, one of the realities I think I often ignore when I'm reading a story like this is that while I'm eager to sacrifice, while I am eager to accompany Peter Pan somewhere and give up anything, I rarely am willing to make uh, significantly smaller sacrifices or take significantly smaller risks for the kingdom of God. I am willing to follow Peter Pan straight to Neverland or Robin Hood into the heart of Sherwood Forest or I'm very willing to leave everything behind and follow Gandalf on a, a great journey. 
But in my life, I tend to struggle with submitting to King Jesus, to submitting to his, his rule and reign. When it comes to that, my willingness tends to wane. And I'm sure if we polled the congregation this morning, we would all probably have a variety of reasons why we struggle following King Jesus, why we struggle submitting to his rule and reign. But I think if we look more broadly at this topic, uh, a lot of our struggle comes from not truly knowing or understanding who King Jesus is, not truly knowing or understanding who it is that calls us to follow him. Our passage this morning is Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, so you can go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles. Again, Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. We're going to look at this text uh, this morning and see specifically uh, how understanding King Jesus more fully will lead us to follow him more fully. Uh, So if you have that, go ahead and uh, stand with me as we read God's word together. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that your word is living and active, that uh, you have given us in Scripture so much of yourself. You have revealed who you are, your character, your nature. Lord, we pray that this morning that knowing you more fully would allow us to worship you more fully and to follow you with our lives. We pray that you enabled us to submit to your rule and reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And go ahead and be seated. Uh, as we look at this passage this morning, uh, we're going to highlight three three points uh, in relation to it. Uh, The supremacy of King Jesus, our struggle with King Jesus, and our submission to King Jesus. I actually really tried hard not to alliterate this because my wife was giving me some grief about that, and Brian did it last week. Uh, But I took a bunch of notes, reading a couple commentaries on this, and and every commentary mentioned these exact same three things, and so I just thought, well, that's unescapable. There it is. Uh, In the first point, we're going to unpack much of what this text is saying about Jesus, but then the the second and the third points are really more about what we do with this text. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our lives? Uh, However, before we look at Paul's description of King Jesus in this text, I want to give just a very brief background on the occasion for this book, uh, and the occasion is specifically for uh, our passage today. Uh, Paul, as many of you know, is a, a missionary. He's a church planner. And one of Paul's converts, so not even Paul himself directly, but one of his converts takes uh, the gospel to uh, the people in Colossae, and many of them become saved. Many of them give their life to Christ. So as a result, this church, the Colossian church, is planted. Uh, But Paul has gotten word that there is some false teaching that has come up in the Colossian church. Some false teachers have entered the church, and they start preaching this message that Jesus is not supreme and that Jesus is not sufficient. That more is needed to experience God, to fully know God, that more is needed to be saved. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage the Colossian church to recognize and to understand the sufficiency and the supremacy of King Jesus. And in this church, Paul gives gives us one of the most concentrated and truly astonishing uh, descriptions of Jesus in all of Scripture. 
There's only a couple other places where Jesus is described this way, but it's a, it's a very powerful description. So let's look at this, this first point, uh, the supremacy of King Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller has described this passage as a breathtaking roller coaster ride through the incarnation. A breathtaking roller coaster ride through the incarnation. Did any of you guys get that when we read that just a second ago? The, is your breath taken away? Do you feel like you were on this roller coaster ride through the incarnation as we read that text? Uh, maybe some of you more. Maybe some of you are a lot more observant or just spiritually minded than I am. Uh, but I'm, I'm imagining, at least I would hope, <laughs> for my own sake, that many of you are more like me, and we, we read these things, but they don't really uh, stand out to us exactly what it's saying. It's easy sometimes to read these passages and not spend time just dwelling on exactly what this is saying, or more importantly, what it means about Jesus. Uh, by way of illustration, there's a, a television show called The Office that went out, off the air a couple of years ago. Um, I'm sure some of you in the congregation are probably big fans of The Office. Um, as the name would imply, it takes place in an office building. Uh, and there's this, there's this one scene at the very beginning of one of the episodes where one of the characters, uh, whose name is Stanley, is late getting into the office. And so all the characters start talking about Stanley. And uh, one of them makes a comment about Stanley's mustache. And then somebody says, wait a minute, Stanley doesn't have a mustache. And then this debra- debate instantly breaks out, and the whole office is divided over, does Stanley have a mustache? And they're drawing pictures, and they're, they're like, you know, look, which one looks more like Stanley? And they're searching his desk to find a picture of him trying to prove one way or another, does Stanley have a mustache? And if you're watching the episode, you, you start to think, well, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, these people see him every day. I mean, yeah, it's good for a joke, but there's no way they don't know what Stanley looks like. But, but then you start to think about it, and the genius of that scene sinks in because you start to go, wait, does Stanley have a mustache? And this is, this is like season seven or eight. I mean, this is further down the line. So you're thinking, I've been watching this show for years. Does Stanley have a mustache? I don't know. Uh, I've seen that episode several times, and I, I can say fairly confidently, I'm pretty sure Stanley has a mustache, but I'm not positive right now. I'm thinking, does Stanley have a mustache? Uh, isn't it interesting how we can spend so much time around the same people and yet miss very significant aspects of their appearance and their personality until somebody makes a comment and you go, wait, that person isn't like that. And you go, yeah, they are. And you start to think, I see that person every day. I think sometimes in the church, and particularly here in the United States, when we talk about Jesus so much, uh, when, when Jesus is just very well known and the gospel story is very well known, it's really easy to feel like we know Jesus, but overlook or miss very significant aspects of Jesus' character and his attributes. Uh, in, our, in our culture today, uh, we're very idolatrous towards the ideas of freedom and, and free will, the will of mankind. And as a result, we talk a lot about Jesus' compassion, we talk a lot about his mercy. We talk a lot about his grace. But this idea of supremacy, we don't really like that. Uh, if I had titled this sermon, The Supremacy of Jesus, it probably would have made a lot of us jump back a little bit. Uh, but it's the neglect of this attribute. That's one of the driving factors behind Paul writing this letter. So let's walk through this passage and unpack uh, exactly what Paul is saying about the supremacy of Jesus. If you look in, in your text at verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. On the surface, this verse is really confusing. He is the image of the invisible God, seems to imply that he is like a God, but he truly isn't God. Uh, And the firstborn of all creation seems to kind of say that he is the first of God's creations. And there are uh, many groups, many cults, and many people who have twisted this passage to mean something uh, really dangerous and really wrong. Because that's not at all what this verse is saying. Uh, What Paul is saying in this verse, in very bold terms, is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. 
Jesus is supreme over all creation. Uh, notice the verse does not say he is the image of God. It says he is the image of the invisible God. This means that if you want to know God, if you want to see God, if you want to understand God's character, his nature, his heart, all of that you will find in King Jesus. It means that Jesus makes the invisible God visible to us. That if we seek to know God, we can know him through Jesus. Uh, And the firstborn of all creation, uh, I actually prefer the way the NIV says this a little better. It says, he is the firstborn over all creation. Uh, This does not mean that Jesus was created or that there was ever a moment when Jesus was not in existence. Uh, But for the church uh, in Colossae, for the Colossian people, and for really anybody else in Paul's time, uh, they would not have assumed that Paul was saying that Jesus was born, that he was the firstborn in a physical sense. They would have instantly known what Paul was talking about because they, they had these laws of primogeniture or uh, the rights of the firstborn at that time. And so the right of the firstborn meant that the firstborn got all the wealth of the father, he got all the possessions of the father, he had all of the father's status, he had his father's reputation, he had his father's power. In other words, the firstborn was equal in every way to the father and greatly esteemed in that culture. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is equal in every way to the Father. He is the one true God, and he is supreme over all creation, the firstborn over all creation. But but if you still struggle with that phrase, if it it doesn't quite clear it up, uh, verse 16 clears up any question we may have about whether or not Jesus was created, because it says, for by him all things were created. Jesus cannot have been created if All things were created from him. Everything has its beginning in him who has no beginning. Uh, What is actually being emphasized by the term firstborn is in fact that everything in existence comes second to King Jesus. That he is first over everything. That everything on creation is subject to King Jesus, the supreme God over all creation. Uh, Verse 16 emphasizes this further by saying all things, this this is a really astounding part, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is not just the creator of the physical world, which sometimes when we read that, we we might be tempted to think that, but he's the creator of all things physical and spiritual. He's the firstborn of all creation, physical and spiritual, which is really astounding if you let that sink in for a moment, because that means absolutely everything in the physical and spiritual realm is in existence because of King Jesus. And not just life, but, but authorities, power and placement. Authorities, dominions, rulers, thrones. There is not a single thing in existence in all creation that was not created by Jesus and allowed to be there. Meaning, there are no authorities, there are no thrones, there are no rulers that are not in place because Jesus or they're not, they are allowed to remain in place because Jesus allows them. Jesus allows everything to exist in all creation. Again, the emphasis here is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. But if you skip down to verse 18, it says Jesus is supreme over the church. The language used in this verse is he is the head of the body of the church. Uh, now Paul is getting to the heart of what the Colossian church is dealing with. Because the false teachers are, are compromising Jesus' supremacy over the church, over life. Um, But I think a lot of our churches in the United States right now are struggling with this because we allow social issues, uh, we allow social trends, we allow the mood uh, of of the people around us to dictate what the church is, to to become the head of the church. 
And in the next chapter, uh, if you don't have to turn there, but if you look at uh, Colossians 2, 18 and 19, it says this, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the body, the whole body, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If you focus on verse 19, the language of headship is used again. What Paul is saying here is that Christ is the head of the church, that he's the most important part of the body, that nothing will happen without the head. Uh, all other members of the, bodies are immobile, of the body are immobilized without the head. Uh, and he illustrates this somewhat, somewhat comically, because he, he's basically saying that it is possible for a church to try and exist, to try and function without its head. If you picture that for a second, it, it's kind of funny, and then it gets really sad, because you realize that there are many churches that try to function that way, and it's very easy uh, for mankind to try to function that way. And then, as you know, Bob, Bob mentioned that yesterday the, the session got together um, to spend time um, discussing uh, where we feel God leading us. Um, and one of, one of the things that, that was uh, emphasized over and over again in our meeting, we did it, uh, we spent a lot of time doing this. We spent a lot of time in prayer. We spent a lot of time asking God what his leading for this church is because it is so important for the leadership at this church, for our session, our deacons, it's important for all of them. They all recognize this, that scripture, that prayer, that the leading of Christ are the most important things because they all recognize that Christ is the head, that King Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, If you look back at Colossians 1, uh, the next verse uh, 18 uh, brings this point of supremacy to King Jesus in a very, to a very powerful climax. Uh, It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here we see that not only is King Jesus supreme over all creation, not only is he supreme over the church, he is supreme over life and death. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's saying that Jesus was the first to die and the first to rise again fully glorified. He was the first to rise again fully glorified. No one else was like that. Jesus ushers in a new age and a new life. Uh, He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. This means that through King Jesus comes not only our physical creation, but the new life we have in him. He he did not only give us physical life, but he gives us a new spiritual life. We were created by him, and we were made a new creation by him. Uh, The last line of verse 18 uh, stings just a little bit, because it says, in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent means to surpass everything else. To surpass everything. And verse 19 gives us the reason why he is preeminent. It says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning, King Jesus is the fullness of God. It's like that firstborn language again. He is God, there is nothing greater. He is supreme over everything. But here's what this means for us, and this is where, uh, if we think about it, this, this stings a little bit. This means that you cannot know the supreme God if you make anything else supreme. Or to say it another way, you cannot worship the supreme God if you make anything else supreme. You cannot know and you cannot worship the supreme God if you make anything else in your life supreme over him. I don't know about you, but but I struggle with that because there's a lot of stuff in my life that I would like to make supreme, that I would like to put in that position. And this just takes us right to our next point, which is our struggle with King Jesus. Uh, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, 
and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Does anyone recognize what that language is from? I'm a youth leader, so I'm used to people just shouting stuff out, so you can, you can just shout it if you want. Does anyone know where that comes from? Uh, yeah. The Declaration of Independence. It's right from the Declaration of Independence. In fact, that's the, uh, that's the introduction to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is a, a letter rejecting a king. It's rejecting a king going all the way back to 1776, which sets the, the course for the system of government we have now, elected representatives, as opposed to a, the sovereign rule of a king. Now, I'm not speaking against the Declaration of Independence, and I'm not even opening up a, a debate about political systems. Uh, but what I want to point out is that going all the way back to 1776, we have associated a certain negative connotation with this idea of a king. When we hear the word king, it rubs us the wrong way. In fact, I've been using the term King Jesus very intentionally throughout this sermon, and maybe it's grating on you just a little bit. It feels really awkward to say King Jesus so much. And I think part of that reason is because we're not used to saying King Jesus. We don't often say King Jesus. That's just not the way that we typically describe him, and it's certainly not the way we describe him when we're, when we're evangelizing to people. And I think part of it is because we live in a democracy, and we don't like kings. That's too much power for one person to have. And there's some very specific language in this passage that naturally kind of gets under our skin. If you look at verse uh, 16, 17, and 18, it says, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, we don't have a problem confessing that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't struggle to acknowledge him as the creator of all things. We don't mind saying that the fullness of God dwells in him. We don't even mind saying that he's the head of the church because that fits nicely into our life, right? Jesus is the head of the church. Of course, that makes sense. Uh, and we love the, the reconciliation language of verse 20, which we haven't gotten to yet. But when it comes to acknowledging Jesus as king before all things, preeminent over all things, uh, when it comes to saying that all things were created for him, that's when we start to struggle just a little bit with, with that language. Uh, if, 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 if our president or one of our politicians stood up in front of us and said, you are all here for me. You are all here to serve my purpose, to serve my whim, to do whatever pleases me. If one of our leaders said that, they would be gone right away. doesn't matter what political party they were from. Nobody would, would tolerate that. We don't, even, we don't even let our celebrities be that narcissistic, right? I mean, our celebrities might be really talented, but they always go, oh, I don't know. It just, you know, things just kind of happened. I just get up in front of the mic and things just, you know, I get, you know, the movie camera starts rolling and I'm just, you know, doing my thing. I'm so glad it looks really complicated to you guys. I mean, we don't, we don't let our, our celebrities be that, that prideful. Uh, verse 17 actually takes it a step further by pointing out uh, that Jesus holds all creation together. And that means that even if you wanted to fully reject King Jesus, you couldn't do it. That means that your heart beats because Jesus makes it beat. It means you, your, take in, or your, your, your lungs take in breath because Jesus causes them to take in breath. It means that the world turns and the sun rises because Jesus does it. I mean, that means that we are dependent upon King Jesus for everything. And if I'm honest with myself, I don't like that. I don't like something having that kind of power over me. I don't like... Uh, thinking that I was created for the purpose of serving someone else. 
I don't like thinking that I'm dependent on someone, that, that there exists someone in this world who has absolute control, absolute authority over me. Now, Albert Camus, who is a, a French writer, a journalist, and philosopher, he expressed this struggle fairly blatantly. Uh, he said this, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. What he's saying is that if we feel our freedom being threatened, if we don't feel free, that we will do everything in our power to make our very existence an act of rebellion, an act of rebellion against whatever it is that threatens our freedom. Now, we're all here this morning in church to, uh, to worship God. So I, I'm imagining that very few of us would want to say it that blatantly. Very few of us would express it the way that Camus did. But if we dig a little deeper, I think if we, if we were to honestly look at our hearts, we would probably find uh, that our actions and our thoughts very quickly convey that kind of rebellion. We might not say it that blatantly, but, but I bet if we dug a little deeper, we would, find all, we would find that in all of our hearts. If Jesus is supreme over everything, if he is the source of physical and spiritual life, then there is literally nothing that he cannot ask from us. Once you recognize the, supre- the supremacy of King Jesus described in this passage, there is no way to avoid the next step of acknowledging that nothing can be greater than him. And that you and I will struggle with this ultimately because we're afraid of what that might mean. We struggle submitting to King Jesus. We struggle with King Jesus because of this. We struggle with what, uh, because we're afraid of what he may call us to do. We're struggling because we're afraid of the risk we may have to take. We struggle because we're afraid of the discomfort we may be called to endure. And we struggle because we are afraid it may cost us the things we love more than anything else. The things we have made supreme. If Jesus isn't king, if he's just a a teacher, a counselor, or a guide, then there is a limit to what he can ask from us. And that's often the way people outside of the church describe Jesus. He's a teacher. He's a guide. He was a wonderful mentor. But if he's the king, that that has significant implications for us. If he is king, if he is God, then there is nothing in your life that could be held back from him. This means... You can't hold back anything, not your job, not your relationships, not your money, not your social status or reputation, not your possessions or your plans for retirement. Anything that you hold dear, anything that is most important to you. He might change some of that. He might not change any of that. Or he might change all of that. But you cannot withhold anything from his reach. Again, emphasizing this, you cannot know the supreme God, if you hold anything else supreme. You cannot worship the supreme God if you make anything else supreme. And this sets us up for the the final point, our submission to King Jesus. Uh, If you had any kind of uh, introduction to physics in high school or in middle school, um, you were probably exposed to some of Newton's laws. My father has a master's degree in engineering, and my father-in-law is an engineer, um, so I I get exposed to this stuff all the time. It just kind of seeps out of them any, any chance they get. Um, Newton's first law says this, an object at rest stays at rest and an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. Unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. In, any, in other words, if I were to put like this foam cup up here, it's at rest. And it's going to stay at rest. It's going to stay right there until it's acted upon by an unbalanced force. Like my hand. There's the unbalanced force. In our lives, King Jesus is an unbalanced force. 
He's an unbalanced force. He enters your life, and what was in motion is jarred. And it's either jarred in a different direction or a different speed, or maybe it stops altogether. The things that were at rest are knocked into motion. But Jesus never enters a sinner's life and leaves them untouched. He never enters the lives of sinners like you and me and leaves us untouched. And that's what submission to King Jesus looks like. Submission means reorienting your life around King Jesus. It means reorienting your life around King Jesus. His will, his plans, his purposes. This means allowing King Jesus to be an unbalanced force to enter your life and to shake things up drastically. Which means that anything in your life that you consider off-limits, anything in your life that you consider supreme, will get displaced in favor of the one who is supreme. Submission also means giving radically for the expansion of the kingdom. This means giving our time, our money, our resources, our possessions, all for the sake of the kingdom. So for example, you might have a really nice van, and maybe you let the youth group use that to take the junior high kids to summer camp in June. Sorry, I had to stick that one in there. But, um, but I will say, there is a family in this church, I'm not going to name them because I didn't run this by them, but there's a family in this church who since 2004 has been letting the youth group use their vans pretty much whenever we needed them. A lot of miles, a uh, little bit of wear and tear, some discoloration on the carpet. Uh, that's 11 years. Their kids have all graduated from high school. They're not in the youth group anywhere, but we still get to use their vans. Uh, that's what submission looks like. That's an act of submission, surrendering your possessions for the use of the kingdom. And I will tell you one thing. There's been a lot of lives touched and a lot of kingdom expansion that happened because of those vans and in those vans. That's what submission looks like. But if, if we're truthful with ourselves, when we're talking about our struggle with Jesus and we're talking about our struggle with submission, we really don't struggle with this idea of submission or even the practice of submission. Submission actually comes quite naturally to us. We're actually very good at it. Every day we freely and willingly submit our time, our money, and our resources, and ourselves to all sorts of things. Things like this. Sports. Uh, how much time do you spend watching and reading about your favorite teams? How many statistics do you have memorized? Or how often has your mood towards others been dictated by whether or not your favorite team won? Or music, movies, TV shows. How many song lyrics or lines from movies do you have memorized? How many hours have you spent watching your favorite TV show over and over and over again? Uh, social media. It's a hard one. How much time do you spend on social media? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Catching up with your friends, making sure everyone knows what's going on in your life. What about money? How much time do you spend focusing on your finances? Or what in your life are you neglecting so that you can just make more and more money? This is a big one. What about political views? How passionate are you about your political party? And how, uh, like, what lengths are you willing to go to to win someone over to your side politically? How much time do you spend listening, and, and listening to and reading your favorite political commentators? And how does this compare with the amount of time you spend in scripture or in prayer? Or how, how passionate you are about seeing people one to the kingdom of Christ? Does your faith inform your political views, or do your political views inform your faith? That's a tricky one when we live uh, in a country without a king. Uh, ultimately, we are always willing to submit to anything that helps us pursue comfort 
entertainment, and happiness. You might not struggle with the ones that are up here, but all of us in some ways submit to something so that we can pursue comfort, entertainment, and happiness. We don't struggle with the idea or the practice of submission. We struggle submitting these things to King Jesus. We struggle submitting these things, uh, the things that we consider supreme, to the supreme king. But how can we possibly do this? Because even if you feel stung by this a little bit, the question is, how, how do we get to the point where we can let these things go? How do we submit what matters most to us for the sake of King Jesus, for the sake of putting him first? How do we resist clinging to our comfort, to our happiness, to, um, to all of these things, instead of just saying to Jesus, lead, I will follow you wherever you go? Well, in the story of Peter Pan, as Mr. and Mrs. Darling are heading to the nursery to prevent their children from flying off with Peter Pan, the narrator steps outside of the situation for a moment. And he dialogues with the reader, and this is what he says. Will they reach the nursery in time? If so, how delightful for them, and we shall all breathe a sigh of relief. But then there will be no story to tell. On the other hand, if they are not in time, I solemnly promise that it will all come right in the end. Mr. and Mrs. Darling rushed into the nursery just a bit too late, the birds were flown. I solemnly promise that it will all come right in the end. This promise from the narrator just kind of resonates with you throughout the rest of the book, throughout the rest of the story, as you're reading throughout every adventure, throughout every uncertain or dangerous situation, every brush with death, every time things get tense, you remember what the narrator said. It will all come right in the end. Going all the way back to Genesis, God made that same promise to us. It will all come right in the end. And King Jesus showed us, gave us the surety of that promise. It's through his life, death, and resurrection that we will know for certain it will all come right in the end. And this is clearly seen in the last verse of our text. If you look at verse 20, it says, Through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things will come right in the end, not because of how well we submit to King Jesus, but because of his submission to the will of the Father. Not because of how well we submit to him, but because of his submission to the will of the Father. Because he took our cross upon himself. Because he died the death that we should have died. He laid aside his glory and his supremacy and submitted himself to the womb of a woman. To the pains of being born to the awkwardness of adolescence and growing up. The word of God had to learn how to speak. Isn't that ironic? He submitted himself to the frailty of being a human being so that he could live, so that he could die, and so that he could rise again for us. King Jesus did not hold back anything from us. He submitted everything. And in return for all that he's done for us, we struggle to submit to him. We struggle to submit to him who didn't hold anything back from us. We question his promises and whether or not we might get a little more satisfaction out of something else. I can tell you emphatically that you won't. You won't find satisfaction in anything else. You will not find joy and you will not find peace in submitting your life to anything other than the rule and the reign of King Jesus. I'm going to invite uh, the worship team to come forward now uh, as we prepare to sing our final song. But in light of all that King Jesus has done on our behalf, in light of all that he's done for us, I encourage us all now, let us submit to him. 
And let us rejoice that we are able to sing these words that we're about to sing in a moment. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are King. For there is truly nothing else in this world that compares with you as King. There is nothing in our lives that will give us the satisfaction, the joy, the peace, the comfort, and the happiness that you will give us. Lord, I pray now that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would go from this place this morning, moved by your spirit, pricked by your spirit, to let go of the things that we hold supreme above all, recognize that you are our king, and submit ourselves to your rule and your reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.